Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Today's interview is with Susanna Siegel, Professor of Philosophy at Harvard University. Her new book, The Rationality of Perception, is just out from Oxford University Press. You open your eyes, you see the sunlight entering the window, and you form the belief that it is well past dawn. It's reasonable for you to believe that it is well past dawn on the basis of your perception. And quite generally, seeing is often a good reason for believing, when things go well. But suppose we have a case like this. Jill believes that Jack is angry, although she has no good grounds for this belief. Nevertheless, when she sees him, She sees his face as angry, even though it is neutral. So is it reasonable for Jill to believe that he is angry on the basis of what she sees? No, Siegel argues, her perception has been hijacked by her prior unfounded belief, and so it cannot turn around and justify that belief, even if Jill thinks it does from her perspective. And while this is a simple and artificial example, Similar sorts of problems arguably arise in real-world cases. For example, when an interviewer with sexist beliefs perceives a woman job candidate as being less competent than she in fact is, and then believes even more strongly on the basis of this perception that women are in fact less competent. In her new book, Siegel articulates a framework for understanding how to assess the capacity of perceptions to justify On a traditional view, perceptions do not themselves have epistemic status. They just provide evidence to other states, like beliefs, that do have this status. Siegel argues, in contrast, that perceptions, like beliefs, can be appraised epistemically as rational or irrational, and that perceptions can be inferred from beliefs. This view of of perception, in turn, is used to analyze when and how the influence of a prior outlook on a perception's ability to justify that outlook can be downgraded or even upgraded. The rationality of perception provides an illuminating new approach to the relation between perceiving and believing that will spark vigorous debate in years to come. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, Susanna Siegel, hi. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. I'm happy to be talking to you about your new book, Rationality of Perception. Before we get into the details of the book, uh, maybe you can give us a little bit of a background about yourself as a philosopher and then, you know, how you came to the topic of the book and to the writing of the book. Well, I've always been interested in philosophical questions, though for many years I I didn't know that those questions were the ones that counted as philosophical. But an example is that I recently remembered um, nights lying awake in elementary school trying to remember everything that had happened to me during that day and wondering why it didn't take very long to remember a whole day's worth of activity. It seemed like it should take as long to remember it as it took to live through it. And if it didn't take that long, I must be missing something. So I remember puzzling over that, um, but never realizing that until much later that it was a philosophical question about, about representation and how the features of a representation might not be the features of what's represented. Um, But I was always drawn to philosophy, and I came to the questions in this book um, from thinking about a story that at the time I found very amusing, and I thought it was just sort of a a joke, as everybody who hears it does. And the, the story is about people who were unsure how mammalian reproduction worked. Um, and this was at the time, this was at the time when microscopes were, were just invented. And there were these 17th century pre-formationists who believed that, um, who believed that the way mammalian reproduction works is that there are some seeds in a human that contain little miniature humans. And if you put the seeds in the right sort of place, then they grow into big humans. And when I, when my daughter was very small, um, 
you know, when they start to ask questions about where people come from, it's sort of interesting to see what they come up with. I mean, if you just a priori try to generate generate these these theories, it's not a it's not a bad start if you're really just guessing. Um, anyway, the the story that gripped me was a story about preformationists who claimed to to see human embryos curled up inside of sperm cells when they looked at sperm cells for the first time under a microscope. So here was a case where here was a case where people favored a certain hypothesis and it seemed as if the fact that they favored the hypothesis was influencing what they saw um, when they tried to confirm it. So from the outside, as people, you know, looking on um, or listening to this narrative, it's just sort of, it's just sort of funny or absurd. Um, but from their point of view, they might think that they had actually confirmed their theory. And the more I thought about their epistemic situation, the more, the more puzzling it seemed um, because when I compared it to other situations, there's all sorts of situations in which we see things and come to form reasonable beliefs on the basis of what we see. Um, and in fact, one of the most, one of the most powerful responses to external world skepticism, um, says that, uh, just by having, say, a visual experience of mustard in your refrigerator, um, you can become justified in believing that there's mustard in your refrigerator. You don't have to have justify beliefs that rule out various skeptical scenarios, just having your experience is enough. Um, and the more I thought about the preformationist case, um, the more I came to call into question that theory of perceptual justification, even though I, I felt the force of that theory of perceptual justification very strongly. So I, 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 felt, uh, I felt troubled by the, by the conflict. Okay, so um, you, you call this problem, you know, the problem of, of hijacked experience. And one of the things that, you know, struck me was its, its at least apparent similarity, if not identity, with questions in philosophy of science about theory ladenness of observation. Uh, you know, the, so the preformationist cases, you know, sounds a lot like that. Um, and then, um, of course, in, in visual perception or, or just perception in general, you have the, the idea of cognitive penetration and, you know, the idea that, you know, what you perceive in some sense depends on what you believe. Um, and that is also a problem in, in epistemology as well. Could you, um, so in terms of, so you, you call this hijacked experience. Um, and I was just wondering for listeners who are more familiar with the, you know, debates maybe on cognitive penetration or theory ladenness of observation, um, how would you, how would you relate your uh, this concept of, of of hijacked experience to these other these other sorts of uh, worries that people have had? Yeah, um, they're they're certainly related. Um, the notion of hijacked experience is a notion that's tailor made to state a very specific epistemic problem, and the specific epistemic problem is um, has the form of the fact that there's a very simple question, a yes, no question that does not have a very simple or straightforward answer. Um, and I'll put the question in its simplest form using a very simple example involving Jack and Jill. So Jill and Jack have a complicated relationship and Jill is, she's afraid that Jack um, might be angry at her and she suspects that you know, he might be, and she's not sure. She can't wait to see him to figure out where exactly things stand. Um, but unbeknownst to her, when she sees him, her fearful suspicion that he's angry affects the visual experience she has when she looks at him so that when she looks at him, she has a visual experience in which he is angry. Um, now, if you saw him, he'd just look like he has a neutral expression, which is in fact what he has. But when Jill sees him, her perceptual experience is influenced by her fearful suspicion. So she's a little bit like she's in the position that the preformationist I described is in. And the question is whether it is just as reasonable for Jill to believe that Jack is angry on the basis of this experience she has, um, as it would be if she had that very same experience, but it wasn't influenced by her fearful suspicion. Um, so that's a yes, no question. Is it reasonable for Jill to believe her eyes when Jack looks angry to her as a result of Jill's own fearful suspicion that he is angry? And if you answer yes to this question, then what you're saying is that um, it's, it's reasonable for Jill to believe her eyes and her take on the situation, which is that She's just like in any old situation where, you know, you're trying to find something out and you look and your perception tells you something and you believe it. There are many situations in which that's a completely reasonable thing to do. And in fact, we couldn't get around the world if that wasn't so. 
Um, if you say no, what you're saying is that the fact that her visual experience is being generated in part by her fearful suspicion actually makes a difference to whether that experience can give a reason to believe her eyes. Um, when I thought about um, the confirmationism case, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so the, the problem of, of, of hijacked experience is, is that problem. Um, the problem of whether it's reasonable for Jill to believe her eyes, um, given that her visual experience is generated by her prior fearful suspicion. And what a hijacked experience is, is it's an experience, uh, it's a perceptual experience um, in which the perceptual inputs to the experience haven't been given enough weight and the prior outlooks have been given too much weight in generating the experience. Whereas when you compare hijacked experience to um, cognitive penetration in general, um, well, then you're, if you compare it to just the very general idea that what you believe or know or want could affect what you see, um, there are instances of that phenomenon that are epistemically totally fine. So hijacked experience is picking out something more specific. There are also a great many different phenomena that go under the label of cognitive penetration. For example, there is what Zenon Plishin um, talked about when he was arguing that vision is cognitively impenetrable. He was focused on early vision. Um, so the debate that you alluded to about whether there is any cognitive penetration, um, you know, how that, if, if, if the debate is about the existence of some phenomenon, then of course it matters a lot exactly what phenomenon it is that we're talking about. And in the case of, um, the, the debate that, um, surrounds Plitian's views, um, that debate is, is about whether early vision can be influenced, um, by other parts of the cognitive system. Whereas, um, hijack experience is much more specifically about, um, conscious perceptual experience, not just about early vision. They're not the same because, um, for one thing, there's perceptual experiences that aren't visual. And for another, even in the case of visual experience, um, it is the result of more than just, more than just early vision. So that's one difference between hijacked experience and cognitive penetration. Um, okay. So, um, that, that was helpful because, um, you know, the idea that perceptual inputs are not are not being given enough weight in some way. Um, w would it be true for you to say that it really doesn't matter whether your perceptual experience as such has been, as you put it, you know, affected, uh, as opposed to maybe just, so here, here's the question. Um, you could talk in one way in which the experience itself is somehow being, uh, affected in some way, or, or you can just say, you know, the perceptual inputs are just being not given enough weight in this whole sort of maybe economy of, you know, how one comes up with one's, you know, beliefs or justifies them or something. And, and if you distinguish those, and I'm, and this is a question, um, then, uh, one, one of the, one of the interesting issues that arises is, you know, does it, is it, is it important for you, given your epistemic concerns, how exactly the experience, you know, the visual experience in this case with Jack and Jill or the preformationists, does it, is, is it really important how, what happens exactly to the sort of quality of the experience or does it, could that be just maybe one way in which the epistemic arises, but the epistemic the epistemic issue would still arise just in virtue of whatever it is, you know, for perception is just not being given enough weight. Well, there's different moments at which things could be given weight. Um, and uh, I was referring to um, the weight that factors have in producing an experience to begin with. Um, then there's maybe another, there's another domain in which it's, useful to talk about giving weight to things, which is how much weight do you give your experience? Like how much confidence do you have in your experience? So if I, if I, you know, see a pool of water ahead, um, I might give a lot of weight to it if I'm, you know, in rainy New England, but I might give much less weight to it if I'm in a desert thinking that it's a mirage or something like that. Um, so th that's a different notion of giving weight to things, um, where we're talking about how we're talking about our responses to our visual experience. Whereas I was, um, using the, the notion of weight when I defined hijacked experience, I was using a, a notion of giving weight um, that's not something a person is doing in response to their perceptual experience, but rather 
um, something that's happening inside of a subject uh, on the way to the perceptual experience being produced. And I purposefully left open, well, what is too much weight? And what is it, what is it to give too much weight to prior outlooks and not enough weight to perceptual inputs? Um, I'm, I'm leaving that open when I initially define the notion because um, the notion is supposed to help us um, label a problem that I think we can understand even prior to, to answering those questions. You asked about the relationship between hijacked experience and theory-ladenness of observation, so perhaps it would bring it into focus a bit more if I say a little bit about that contrast too. Um, like the notion of cognitive penetration, the notion of theory-laden observation has a lot of vagaries in it. Um, it's very useful for pointing in a certain direction, but maybe less useful if we want to zero in on a specific epistemic problem. Um, so for example, in the case of theory-laden observation, um, our antecedent, our scientific theories that we're trying to test or that we favor, they might influence um, how we respond to our observations, or they might respond, they might influence the scope of our observations by influencing which data we collected to begin with. Um, these would both be instances of theory-laden observation. Um, they might influence the very content of our observations to begin with. So there are different phenomena that theory-laden observation can map onto, um, whereas a hijacked experience is um, leaving a lot open about exactly how experiences come about, but it's, um, but it's not leaving open that uh, the, the inputs that are coming most directly from the thing that you're perceiving um, aren't being given enough weight. Um, so for example, in the Jack and Jill case, she's seeing Jack by hypothesis. So there's Jack. Jack is making an impact on, on Jill's visual system. So at some point down the line, um, what's happening is that um, inputs that in other circumstances, but for her freeful suspicion, you know, would normally culminate in a, you know, gen, a, a generally accurate um, experience of Jill's face, just like you or I have when we look at Jack, um, are prevented from doing that. They're prevented from doing that by her fearful suspicion. So that's the supposed to be the sense in which the, the perceptual inputs aren't given a chance to control her visual experience in the way that um, they do, presumably do, uh, for us. Okay. Um, so you, you contrast this view uh, with um, phenomenal conservatism. Uh, so maybe you can just say a bit about, you know, that contrast. Um, you know, the traditional view that, you know, you look at something and it gives you justification for believing. Um, uh, and you're asking the f sort of prior question in a way is, you know, when is it reasonable, right? Not taking for granted that it is reasonable, but, you know, under what conditions is it reasonable? Is, is that is that sort of the right way to think of the the contrast? But, yes, that's fair. In, in phenomenal conservatism, that's the label for the view that I mentioned that makes possible this response to the external world skeptic where um, the skeptic says, well, how do you know you're not a brain in a vat? Or how do you know you haven't just swallowed some pill that makes things look this way? Or, you know, how do you know you're not in some wildly different reality? You're just having your experiences controlled by some other entity. Um, and um, one response to those scenarios um, would be to require that in order for the person to have justified beliefs about their surroundings, they would need to have justification for rejecting um, those other scenarios. For example, reason to think that they're positive reason to think they're not dreaming, positive reason to think they're not being deceived. Whereas the, and the great appeal, and, and those, it's, it can be very difficult to have such justified beliefs. And that's why the problem of external world skepticism is such a fascinating and longstanding problem. And the, the beauty and the elegance and the compellingness of phenomenal conservatism is that what it says is that you don't need to have reasons to rule out those scenarios. It's enough just to have the perceptual experiences you have because just merely having those experiences um, is a way of having reason to, you know, sufficient for having reason to believe your eyes. And, you know, before I wrote this book and before I started thinking about the problems that made me write it, I was very attracted to phenomenal conservatism because of its reply that it offers to the skeptic. And because it just seems to match the simple, straightforward um, phenomenon of perceptual uh, justification in everyday life. So, you know, if you, if you want to know if somebody's at the door, you open the door and if nobody's there, then nobody's at the door. And if somebody's there, then somebody's at the door. It's as simple as that. Um, 
and phenomenal conservatism seems to, you know, re- respect that simplicity. Now, it's not a particularly sophisticated analysis of it, um, and much more sophisticated things have been said, but it would be um, appealing to have such a straightforward, such a straightforward theory. Um, and um, so I, I feel the appeal of that theory. But when I considered cases in which um, the very way in which within a person's own mind, the very way in which that experience um, came about seemed to call into question whether you whether it gives you that kind of reason to believe your eyes. Well, that made me call into doubt. Uh, phenomenal conservatism. Hmm. Well, let me let me just you know pursuing the same. I think I've read something by Jack Lyons, and of course, my own colleagues Richard Fummerton and, and others are are internalists, and uh, for them, you know, they would be I think in the phenomenal conservatism camp still. I mean, just having that experience, you know, and and I think they would also say for Jack or for Jill. Uh, She's justified, you know, she, she, her experience, the way it seems to her, he seems angry. She's justified in believing he's angry. And that's the end of it, right? For, for them, I think. Um, uh, so what, um, yeah, how do you, how do you, you know, so there, there seems to be another level of, of analysis here that, that, um, where that sort of a response to the Jack and Jill case is not that, um, is already, you know, it's already reasonable for her because it's her experience and, and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think for and Jack Lyons a bit, um, different on the score because, because Jack Lyons favors a kind of reliabilism, um, whereas Richard Fimmerton, um, as you suggested, doesn't. So they're they're a little bit different, but I think in 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 my my way of opposing phenomenal conservatism, there's really something for the internalist and there's something for the externalist. So um, there's something for the externalist in the idea that um, that there are cases um, like the preformationists in which um, there you know if you feel if you feel at all conflicted about saying that the preformationist ends up with um, you know incrementally more confirmation for preformationism as a result of looking through the microscope. Then what you're saying is that um, the perspective of the perceiver is not the only perspective from which we are guided in our theorizing about uh, what's epistemically justified or not. Um, and so th- that's something for the externalist. But there's also something for the internalist because I draw a big distinction between the cases in which your experiences are coming about because an evil demon is controlling your mind or a computer is controlling your mind and cases in which you are controlling your mind. You know, it's Jill herself who is um, to blame, if anybody is, for the fact that she has this experience. Now, I use blame very lightly there because, in fact, I don't think the notion of blame gets a very strong hold either. Um, but the factors that are shaping her experience are coming from within Jill's own mind. Um, so what we have is, uh, in, in the view I develop, is a case where there are factors that are outside of somebody's perspective, but internal to their mind that can make a difference to their epistemic situation. Um, okay. So, I mean, it, it looks like the internalist is, is um, kind of gets, gets hit from both sides. You know, they sort of go internal because of the evil demon possibility, but now it looks like they've got their own internal evil demon who they can't escape. Yes, that's a bit. I, I'm focused on cases like that. I think the whole distinction between internalism and externalism and epistemology is um, doesn't have as much nuance as we need it to have in order to discuss a lot of very interesting phenomena. Many of which phenomena are really brought to light by interesting work in psychology. Another example of this is the research on attention and the relationship between consciousness and attention. So um, it's a whole set of experiments um, which some people. Um, for example, Ned Block has interpreted as showing that there is consciousness outside of attention. Um, and that's very, very interesting because um, if you ask what kinds of experiences have the special epistemic power that phenomenal conservatism, for example, attributes to them, is the answer, well, just is it just the attentive experiences or is it the conscious experiences, which, if, if Ned Block is right, include experiences that are um, outside of attention? See what I mean? So, um, you know, perhaps visions, without vision science, we might not have drawn that distinction. We might have thought that, 
you know, we, we wouldn't have focused so closely on the relationship between consciousness and attention. But if there are states of which you're conscious but are very highly inattentive, it certainly seems to me a good question to ask whether their epistemic yeah. role is um, the same as the role of consciousness inside of attention. Right. Um, so let's... Um, Okay, so the, the title of the book, you know, Rationality of Perception, and um, the view that you defend is, uh, you call it inferentialism. Um, so can you, can you tell us about, you know, what inferentialism uh, is, and then um, you say a bit more about how that supports this idea of the rationality of perception, because um, that's, you know, obviously a, a, the core of the book in a way. Yeah, so the core thesis of the book um, is a thesis that's supposed to respond to the problem of hijacked experience, respond to that yes-no question I mentioned afterward, and it's supposed to respond by saying that the correct answer is no, it isn't reasonable for Jill to believe her eyes. And um, the grounds for answering no to that question is that um, Jill has... Uh, is that, of course, it's a, it's a hypothetical situation. Um, so the case, the Jack and Jill case is functioning as a kind of example of that which we draw a verdict. Um, but if we want to know uh, what could make it the case that the experience has less um, epistemic power than normally it would have or that it could have um, because of its relationship to some prior outlook of yours, what kind of relationship between a prior outlook and experience could generate that result? My answer to that question is, um, an inference could. So experiences can be the result of inferences. Um, and now, of course, there's a lot of explaining to do because one has to say, what is inference such that experience could result from inferences um, and result from inferences in a way that would affect their epistemic status? Um, so th there's really two very important theses in the book. So one, th one thesis, which is the rationality of perception thesis, is the thesis that says that both visual experiences and the processes by which they arise can be rational or irrational. Um, and then the other thesis, which you're calling inferentialism, um, is, entails a rationality perception. And inferentialism is the thesis that um, experiences can result from inferences. Um, now, in psychology, of course, there's a very long history, going back to medieval times, of um, the idea that experiences, that there's something like unconscious inference or inference is a good model for perception. Um, these notions of inference um, are very frequently not the same as the notions of inference that occur in epistemology when people are talking about um, inferences to conclusions that redound on the rational standing of the subject. So, for example, when Helmholtz said that there is unconscious perception um, that leads to our perceptions of convexity, you know, he wasn't saying that we reach the conclusion that something is convex and that redounds on how rational or irrational the subject is. He wasn't thinking about those notions of rationality or irrationality at all. Um, he was thinking about um, something more like transitions that are sensitive to information. So there's a big ambiguity in the notion of inference, and I spend a lot of time um, in the book zeroing in on the notion of inference that's at work in my notion of inferentialism. And that notion of inference is the one that you find discussions of um, in both practical and theoretical philosophy when people are theorizing about reasoning. Um, okay, so um, we'll get to the, you know, can you return to the, the idea of rationality of perception with a, with a non-rational view? Contrast it with non-rational, yeah. Um, so on the traditional view, um, rationality and therefore the field of epistemology really begins um, when we look at how we respond to our perceptions. It doesn't begin on the route to perception. It begins in the responses to the perceptions that we have. And the rationality of perception um, expands the domain of um, rationality by claiming that, in fact, um, some of the processes that lead up to perceptual experiences can be appraised as rational or irrational. And when I say they can be appraised as, irrational or irras as rational or irrational, um, what I mean is that they can actually redound well or badly on the subject. So just as if, just as if Jill, um, you know, believed on the basis of her fearful thinking that Jack was angry without even seeing him at all, we would think, oh, she's jumping to conclusions. Um, I'm claiming that, um, I'm claiming we can make sense of the idea that a, a, a perceptual experience could be a case of jumping to conclusions, could be irrational for the same sorts of reasons that wishful thinking can be irrational. Um, so I, in other words, I really mean it when I talk about um, rationality as something that redounds well or badly on the subject. That's the kind 
that I'm talking about that I'm saying um, can that that's a kind of status that I'm saying can be manifested by a perceptual experience, not just by a belief or an action. Um, okay, yeah. So that makes that makes makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, so one of so so you have the the inferentialism um, and. Uh, but there's more, obviously, to the account. Um, you know how exactly this responds to the problem of hijacked experience, and you you introduce a number of um, a number of important concepts that all kind of work together. Uh, a key concept, first of all, is is that of epistemic charge, um, which then you know you go into other epistemic downgrade and upgrade and so forth. But maybe we could start first with um, with the idea of epistemic charge and, and how that figures into your your answer or your response to the problem of hijacked experience. Sure. Um, um, well, the my, my strategy in the book for defending the rationality of perception is to face up to just how much one has to explain if one is going to have a theory like this. And um, it's just been presumed without any argument for really very many years um, in epistemology that that perceptual experiences were just beyond reproach. They weren't the kinds of things that could reflect any rational standing of the subject because, as Ernie Sosa puts it at one point, they don't have any standing. Um, they don't manifest any such status. He's actually criticizing that view um, when he mentions it, but he puts it very nicely. Um, and similarly, back... Um, in the 80s, Quanvig uh, and uh, John Quanvig and Wayne Riggs wrote a very important paper in which they were discussing coherentism. And at the time, um, coherentist theories of justification had been formulated um, as theories of a relation that only beliefs could stand into other beliefs. And coherentism was criticized on that ground because um, it didn't seem to have any role for perception to influence how rational your beliefs could be. And so they wrote a paper in which they explored the idea that perhaps um, they're, they're trying to figure out whether perception could somehow participate in these uh, coherence relations. And um, even, even in the context of exploring that idea, which you might have thought would lead them directly to the rationality of perception, um, they just take for granted that it's, it's off the radar. So maybe I could read a quote from them. Um, they say, it might be thought that if coherentism were defined over both appearances, which is what they're calling experiences, uh, if coherentism were defined over both appearances and beliefs, then coherentism would be committed to the view that both beliefs and appearances can be epistemically justified. If that were so, there would be a problem, for it's obvious that appearance states are not suitable objects of epistemic appraisal. So there they are, um, just taking for granted that, um, just taking for granted that the rationality of perception is false. So um, if you have philosophers in mass taking that for granted, there must be reasons they're taking it for granted. It's not just that. Right. I mean, it's, it is, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is a little mysterious because I, I, you know, I find the rationality view, uh, you know, sensible in the sense that, you know, we do appraise, we do appraise perceptions, you know, um, in various ways. And, and so the idea that they're not appraisable is itself, you know, clearly not true, but it's got to be that they're not appraisable, you know, in a specific manner. And the question is, you know, why, why that, you know? Yeah, I think that is a question. And there, are, so I, I um, do a lot of excavating of why people might think that. And I can feel the force of the considerations, for example, the considerations that say, that we are passive with respect to our perception and therefore they're not expressions. They can't be expressions of our rationality. Um, I consider many different roots to the idea that um, perceptual experiences are just the wrong kind of thing um, to be appraised. Earlier in the century, when people theorized about um, perceptual experiences, they, they focused mainly on visual experiences, but even so, they took them to be very much unlike beliefs in their structure. So they didn't think of them as loosely analogous to propositional attitudes, or they didn't think of them as having accuracy conditions. They thought of them of, as, as sense data sometimes, where they're just sort of like, as if, as if the after image was the model of the perceptual, of the model of the visual experience. And if you think of it that way, 
you might think that something about the kind of metaphysical nature of the experiences prevents them um, from redounding on your rational status. So I can see various different routes to um, denying the rationality of perception. Um, but I think a lot of what has to be done if one's going to defend it um, is to address the, the very fundamental and very powerful ideas that are underneath those, those views. Um, so that is part of my strategy. Um, I come to the idea of epistemic charge because um, charge, the, the idea of charge, if you think of electric charge, it's an incredibly useful notion because um, it's a notion of, it's, it's a notion of a property that can then have a valence. You could have negative charge, you can have positive charge. Um, and if you think of the grammar of the words justification and rationality, they actually are forced into doing this awkward double duty in English where um, sometimes uh, rationality is used to denote um, the, the property of being admissible of, as rational or irrational. And then, then the, the second, the other part of its double duty is, is the positive valence thing, the good thing. It's the rational as opposed to irrational. Um, so, and same with justification. You could say, well, you know, can experiences be justified? And then one thing you can mean is, are they the right kinds of things to be, to, to have a positive or negative epistemic status? Another thing you can mean is, can they have just the positive epistemic status? So the notion of charge, you know, gives, at least it has the right, has the grammar that we really need in epistemology so that we don't have to use um, the words rational and justified in, in this double way. And it can be very confusing. Um, now, um, so when I, my book's called The Rationality of Perception, not to mean that, you know, perceptions can be rational in the sense of rational as opposed to irrational, but rather to mean um, perceptions, in particular perceptual experience, um, can have a status as, you know, rational in the positive sense or irrational in the negative sense. Um, so charge is nice because charge just lets you, you know, charge isn't doing double duty for positive charge and charge. It just means charge. And then we have positive charge and negative charge. Uh, I like charge for its grammar, um, and um, but it's not supposed to be some new normative notion, entirely new normative notion alongside the other ones we have. It's just that, as as you know from the debates about justification and epistemology, there are people who think that, for example, the debates between internalists and externalists are intractable because they're actually using different notions. So it's not that you know the reliabilist argues with the Richard Fermatons of the world, um, <laughs> where they're agreeing about what justification, you know, they, they have some background agreement about what it is, and then they disagree about the conditions under which you find it. Um, but according to the, to the pluralists, they're exactly talking past each other, they're having a verbal dispute, there's really two different notions of justification. And I think that's a very live debate in epistemology. So it, um, in the presence of that debate, it's somewhat complicated for me to say, well, charge is just like justification, because that would be siding with the anti-pluralists. Now, secretly or perhaps not so secretly, I actually do side with the anti-pluralists. Um, but, um, I mean, I probably side with the anti-pluralists. Um, but it, uh, um, I wanted to, I wanted to re respect that debate because I don't want to bring in a whole other, um, whole other debate when things are complicated enough as they say. Yeah. So, uh, so charge, you know, it, it, you can result in, uh, so perceptions have an epistemic charge, um, and you defend, you know, that, that idea. Um, and then there can be both epistemic downgrade and epistemic upgrade. And I, I take it that, um, you know, the, you know, Jill perceiving or seeps, you know, it's seeming to her that Jack is angry, uh, you know, by looking at his face. Um, that there's some sort of epistemic downgrade going on in that case. Yes. So um, uh, positive and negative charge is a lot like, you know, being anti-justified or being justified. And since justification can come in degrees, charge can come in degrees. That's another reason I like the notion. There's then a difference, however, um, when we turn to perceptual experiences from beliefs. And the difference is that um, I, uh, is that I, I think there's an idea of um, base, a baseline level of justification. Um, at which it's pretty reasonable to believe our eyes. So if you open the fridge and see the mustard, and then your visual experience gives you what I call baseline amount of justification to believe your eyes. And downgrade is defined relative to that baseline. So an experience is epistemically downgraded um, with respect to one of its contents, um, just if in having those contents, the experience provides less than the baseline amount of justification. Um, for believing those contents or for believing other things that are based on that experience and having that content. 
so yes, Jill, Jill's a perfect example. So in having the content, you know, Jack's angry or he is angry, um, Jill's experience is downgraded if it gives her less reason um, to believe her eyes than it would um, than it would at the baseline. And that's what I'm claiming can happen in the Jack and Jill case. Jill's experience can be epistemically downgraded um, because of its relationship to um, her background, suspicion, or her outlook that Jack is angry. And the way the way our inference enters in is if we want to look more closely at the kind of relationship between a prior outlook and, ex and an experience that could result in an epistemic downgrade, I think we can um, analyze it very well in terms of the relation of inference. Um, so in inferences, like a, a paradigmatic case of the sort of inference I'm talking about is the kind where um, you believe that it rained last night and you infer that the streets are wet even without looking out the window. Um, so you're inferring from the fact, as you see it, that it rained, that the streets are wet. Um, that's an inference. Um, if you didn't have good reason to think that it rained last night, then you're, um, you know, in one sense, your inference would be good. But in another sense, the belief you end up with would be bad because you would be um, drawing an inference from a poorly supported premise. So similarly, if Jill's outlook is not well justified or well founded, um, but she's having an experience that results from it um, via inference, well, then her experience is epistemically downgraded. It has a negative charge because for the same reason that your belief that streets are wet would be unjustified if you drew it, if you if it was a conclusion that you drew from an ill-founded premise. So, could could you say a little bit more about about the baseline? I mean, how how that how a how a perception acquires this 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 baseline, um, and is that is that is that some sort of? I mean, it almost. I I wonder if the phenomenal conservative might just say, well, this is you know, this is just the kind of I don't know paradigm or baseline case, and then these other cases are just, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, peripheral or in some sense, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's not quite the right thing for them to be saying. But um, uh, I, I guess the question is, is there is there some sort of a neutral, um, neutrality intended by the idea of a, of a baseline, um, some sort of non- uh, non-influenced in any way, you know, just, again, just sort of passive or this is, you know, this is just what you get and then you get these other ways that kind of push it off where it ought to be. Yeah. Um, do, you see what I, yeah. do you see what I'm trying to... Yes, I do. That's a very good question. So the way I think of the baseline, it's, it's a quantity. So it's an amount of justification. Um, it's not a statement about what sort of situation we're normally in or anything like that. Um, so it's, a, it's an amount of justification, and, and it's um, that amount that we have when you have pretty good reason to believe our eyes. Now, the phenomenal conservative thinks that um, the, uh, the range of cases in which we're in that, we're in that situation is, is um, you know, any case in which we, we don't have any defeaters, we don't have any positive reason to think um, that there's something wrong with our experience. Um, I think that draws the... I think there are, I think there are cases in which, um, you know, Jill doesn't have a defeater, um, but all the same, her experience um, doesn't provide justification at the baseline. So um, the idea of there being a baseline amount of justification is, is, is just a kind of, it's a quantity. It's not, um, doesn't embody or entail any thesis of how one got to have an experience. Um, in fact, it's compatible with the idea of having baseline justification that your experience could be um, very much influenced by your background beliefs. If the background beliefs were justified, then I'm open to the conclusion that um, you know your experience can have baseline. It could even have have justificatory power above the baseline. Um, like, for example, if you, um, due to your expertise, um, you or even just your familiarity, say with bananas. Um, you come to see a banana as yellow because your visual system has, you know, made an informed um, guess from the initial, from the initial, um, from the very initial inputs at the very beginning of perceptual processing that this thing that that it's faced with is is probably yellow banana. Um, well, that that could that could result in an experience with a content. This is a yellow banana that has justificatory power at the baseline, in my view. Okay, so um, could there be hijacked experiences? So, which, which you know, ones where, as you put it before, there, 
the perception is not given is given less weight. Um, uh, where where that is actually epistemically beneficial. So hijacked isn't yeah. necessarily a negative thing. No, hijacked is a negative thing. Um, so this is where the um, hijacked is a negative thing. But what's not necessarily a negative thing is just being influenced. So um, um, drawing on prior outlooks in generating an experience um, can be epistemically fine. Um, so what's not fine is if you give too much weight to the outlooks and not enough weight to the perceptual inputs. Um, and that's where um, um, this is an this is a case where uh, one would have to know. Um, exactly what the structure of the processing is in order to adjudicate in a given case, um, given that there's some influence by prior outlooks on the experience, whether it's a case of hijacking or isn't a case of hijacking. Um, so that's a level of nuance in the view. I see. Okay. Um, and then one other, one other um, uh, nuance in the view is, is a distinction that you draw between um, the reason power and the, the forward-looking power of a, of, a, uh, of a perception. Can you, can you explain those two things and the role they play? Yeah. Um, it's really only the, the forward-looking power that's... Um, that's yeah, that's that seems to be the cri- critical one. Yeah. Um, um, so the, there's a way of thinking about... Um, well, let me begin with the distinction some people draw between propositional and doxastic justification. So if you, you know, you might have reason to think that there's no parking on your side of the street on, on Tuesdays. Um, um, but, uh, and you, but you might believe that you shouldn't park on that. You shouldn't park on the side of the street. Um, but um, have, um, you could have propositional justification for um, believing, believing the P and um, your actual belief that P might not um, be made for the reason that you have. So that would be a case where you have some propositional justification, but your the actual belief, you know, for, for a belief, and you have a belief, but your belief isn't properly related to that justification. Um, and um, when I'm um, focused on the relationship between a prior outlook and a perceptual experience, um, and I talk about the experience being downgraded or upgraded, um, by virtue of its relationship to the prior outlook, um, the thing that is being um, downgraded or reduced is the power of the experience to provide justification to subsequent beliefs that you would form um, on the basis of that experience. So that's what I mean by the forward-looking power of the experience. So what gets downgraded is the forward-looking power of the experience. Um, now, you could say that what gets downgraded is also the reason power of the experience, meaning the propositional justification it provides. And in many cases, I think that would be correct. Um, it's just that um, it's just that the, where where the downgrade will show up is if you try to um, form beliefs on, in response to experience. Just like if the preformationist goes on to believe preformationism more strongly in response to the experience of embryos in the sperm cells, um, well, then that belief is going to be, on my view, um, poorly justified because the experience didn't really support it, and the experience didn't support it because it was like the conclusion of an inference drawn from unsupported premises. Um, okay. And then, you know, so cases of uh, expertise, right? I mean, famously, are, are those where your perception is actually improved, right, as a result of your knowledge. Um, so those, uh, in those cases, the, what, would the forward-looking power be strengthened? Or, the, or sorry, with the, with the, the beliefs... Sorry, the beliefs that are formed uh, as a result of having this influenced perception uh, would be, uh, uh, they would be upgraded, right? Uh, so let's, let me, let me just go to some of the, uh, of the implications of this, because obviously there's a, I mean, the, um, the ideas, you know, general ideas, you might say, of theory-ladenness or cognitive penetration. I mean, in a in a wider sense, they will um, they they pop up in the idea that um, uh, background beliefs of or prior outlooks about um, you know racism or sexism or any sort of um, uh, Outlook that will affect in some way again your perceptions, right? You, um, that these are bad things. <laughs> um, 
Can you say a bit about how your framework um, addresses those sorts of uh, questions, not just Jack and Jill believing something, you know, about Jack being angry or Jill believing something about Jack being angry, but, you know, people in everyday life who, you know, see, say, a person of color and believe that they're dangerous or believe that they're holding a gun instead of a pair of pliers and, and things like that. I mean, these are obviously cases that, that really matter, right? Um, so can you, can you say something about how your, how you, how, how your framework kind of illuminates those sorts of discussions there, those sorts of cases? Sure. Um, I, when I began to think about these questions, I, I felt that I couldn't really do justice to their philosophical complexity if I didn't discuss cases of, of social perception. Um, and at the time that I was writing the book, there was a huge uh, outgrowth of experiments in psychology um, exploring the effects on the mind of racialized perceptions in various ways. So there were experiments about um, what how you would respond to a task in which you had to press one button if you were seeing a gun and another if you were seeing a tool, um, and whether the um, verdicts you give on on this task would could be influenced if you were shown um, very quickly, but not so quickly that you couldn't actually register it, you know, a, a white man's face as opposed to a black man's face. And um, so with a, with a black prime, people make a lot of errors in this test, no matter what, but they make way more errors um, in the direction of um, classifying a tool as a gun if they're first shown um, a, a face of a black man than they are if they're shown the face of a white man. Um, and that's just psychology. Um, then in, in what you might call phenomenology, but really many different corners of, of American culture. Um, of course, one's very familiar with the narrative of um, a, a white perceiver feeling uh, frightened just on the mere, just on the mere sight of, of a black man or a black boy. And it also happened as I was writing the book that there was a very well publicized um, long series of, of, um, of killings and shootings, um, not just by police officers, but by security guards. Um, there were, there, they weren't, there wasn't a spike in killings or anything like that. It was just, um, it was just a, it was just a, um, phenomenon of, um, this type of, of death being brought into focus by a political movement, by the Black Lives Matter movement. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of things to say about that situation that take us far from the philosophy of perception, but there was also a dimension that was, was quite, quite related, um, to what I was writing about. And the place that it was most related came to the fore, um, in the reasonable person defense, um, of self-defense law. So I began to think a lot about and read a lot about, um, self-defense law. It's hard to see how you could have any sort of system of law or any sort of system of police, um, without self-defense law. And in self-defense law, the sort of main idea is that you are allowed to do things that are, that are coercive or that are, are violent that you're normally not allowed to do if you're facing a threat. Um, and, um, so, you, you know, you, you're allowed to, to push back or to fight or to, to, you know, I, I can't, I can't just go up on the street and, and, and punch someone or hit somebody, but if somebody's attacking me, well, then the rules change. Um, there's a kind of intuitiveness to, this idea in the, in the very, very abstract form. Um, in practice, though, um, self-defense law, as it's interpreted, is very, very complicated and highly sensitive to these other social factors. So, um, um, and in the killings and the cases of violence that I was, that I was looking at, um, there was a whole string of very well-publicized cases that listeners will probably recognize in which, um, for example, uh, uh, the, the police were called um, in response to um, somebody seeing or claiming to see um, a, a boy on a playground with a gun. The, the boy was 12 years old. And when the police came, um, they shot this boy within seconds of seeing him. And when you see pictures of him, you know, it's completely obvious that he's a child. Um, and the thing about this long series of extremely painful um, cases that were publicized by this political movement made into public issues by the political movement. Um, the thing about these cases is that the um, the people who do the shooting, whether police officers or or private security guards, are exonerated. This is a pattern of exoneration, um, 
and they're exonerated on the grounds of self-defense. Um, they're exonerated on the grounds that the, um, that they had reason to fear that they were in a dangerous situation. So now we can't tell, and we'll never know, um, whether the um, influence of whatever outlook they may have brought to the situation reached all the way down to their visual experiences. Like, that's not something we could know. Um, just as in many psychology experiments that people discuss when they discuss the general phenomenon of cognitive penetration, it's always a very big issue whether um, the effects are effects on um, perceptual experience or only effects on how one is responding to one's perceptual experience at the level of belief or at the level of judgment. Um, but the rationality of perception in, um, allows us to rethink um, applications of self-defense law in the following way. Um, just suppose that there could be just suppose that there could be hijacked experiences in these cases where people, for example, are um, walking around with a, a prior outlook that tells them that black men or black boys are, are dangerous or threatening. Um, and if that outlook is what's guiding their experiences instead of they're actually taking in what's before their eyes, which is a child on a playground, um, or for that matter, you know, a teenager in a store who, you know, even if he's doing some minor thing like shoplifting, I don't know how many of your, your friends you know or have told you in their teenage years shoplifted, but I know quite a few people. Um, I mean, I, I am white and I am categorized as racially white. And, and um, the, among my friends who, for whom that's also true, you know, really many of them in their youth were shoplifted or caught shoplifting. And now they're philosophy professors. <laughs> you know, well, Michael Brown was possibly caught shoplifting and he's dead. Um, so that's a big difference. Um, and then there are many people in between who maybe they're not dead, but um, you know, really as a result of these same outlooks are in jail or really have their lives um, taking quite a different turn from um, the lives of people who are white, who did similar things. So um, now when we, as it stands, when you apply uh, self-defense, what you ask is you ask not just whether somebody was afraid. It's not, it's not enough to just be afraid. You have to ask whether the fear was reasonable and whether, you know, or the belief that you are in danger, whether that belief was reasonable. That's one of the questions that you ask. Um, now, if when we evaluate the question of was your belief that you are in danger reasonable, if we, when we ask that question, we only ask whether how it's reasonable to respond to your experience, then if you have one of these hijacked experiences, it might end up being very, very difficult if you don't have the rationality of perception or something like it to um, deny that the belief is reasonable. It's just like, well, hey, is it reason? This is like answering yes to the question about Jill. Is it reasonable for her to believe that Jack is angry? Well, look, that's how he looks to her. What else is she supposed to believe? And um, it's as if you know the phenomenal conservative should go be the lawyer for these for these police officers. <laughs> You know, if they if they need the defense or something, they'd be really good. That's what they should get. They should call on the philosophical experts who say, what else are they supposed to believe? That's how it looked to them. Whereas I want to be the lawyer for the other people and say, well, look, um, when we when we assess what a reasonable um, what a reasonable belief is in the situation, we have to look not just at how it's reasonable to respond to the perceptions we have, but we should ask which um, perceptual experiences are reasonable ones to have to begin with. So that's actually a new way of thinking about applications of um of the reasonable person um, defense, both in self-defense law and in other areas of the law. And that really hasn't been discussed so much for you know, many of the reasons that the rationality of perception was off the radar in philosophy, because you know, we're used to thinking of perception as just what's given. And then reasoning, well, that's another thing. Reasoning rationality is a matter of how you respond to the information you have. Whereas perception, that's a matter of which information do you have to begin with? Where, you know, and I'm problematizing that distinction because I'm saying that um, there are ways, by the time you get to having a conscious perceptual experience, so much may have happened in your mind um, that your experience might be a reflection of your outlooks, your suspicions, your fears, or for that matter of cultural phenomena that have just, you know, that you've just absorbed and made into your own. So um, the, the, the problem brings us to all, it has all those different dimensions. And in the last chapter of the book, um, I talk about um, what I see as a kind of scaled up version of hijacked experience. So the, the problem of hijacked experience is a problem within the individual's mind. Um, but in the last chapter of the book, I consider the relationship between what I call the mind of the world and the individual mind. Um, so what on earth is the mind of the world? Um, well, it's a little bit more like the book of the month than it is like the book of the world, meaning that there could be there are many books of the month, you know, depending on what city you're in and your book club and stuff, you have different books of the month. It's not a single book of the month, whereas there's only one book of the world if you're going to write the book of the world. So the, the mind of the world is like the book of the month in that it's the outlook that is in, embedded in a cultural milieu. Um, and um, 
I make up this character who I call Wit. And Wit is, Wit has just unreflectively absorbed through his surroundings um, an outlook that says that black men are dangerous. And he's absorbed that not through, you know, statistics or anything or, or interactions or, or, or reason, um, but he's just absorbed it because nothing in his life pulls against it. Um, so it's much more detailed in the book how that could be, but I'm just describing somebody who I think is a very realistic 21st century character, even 20th century character. Um, and then the question is, um, well, what about that belief of wit? I mean, he has come by it. He's come by it in just as kind of passive and seemingly innocent a way as Jill comes by her experience that Jack is angry. Jill just opens her eyes and wit just lives his life. Um, and so I think we can analyze the relationship between wit's cultural milieu and wit um, as a kind of testimony um, between a social, um, uh, th that's the thing I call the mind of the world, which is purposefully a metaphor, um, and wit. And I argue that just as um, Jill's experience can be ill-founded because of its relationship to her prior outlook, so too wit's unreflective belief can be ill-founded because of its relationship to a culturally entrenched presumption on the part of the mind of the world, which is just to say his cultural milieu. Um, so both of those things, you know, they take some argument, but, um, but I, I, I think that the, 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 the problems and, you know, people won't, you know, not everyone's going to agree with where I land, obviously. Um, and there's surely a lot to, to disagree with and a, and a lot to debate. Um, but I think the problems are at least analogous in that, um, in both cases, you have somebody who is coming to their, they're coming to their state, the belief in Witt's case and the experience in Jill's case, they're coming to it passively, unreflectively, without any idea of the kind of genealogy of their, of um, where they end up. And then we can ask some epistemic questions about um, how, whether it could nonetheless be ill-founded. And my answer in both cases is yes. Yeah. So let me just, I mean, we're, we're running out of time, but I, I'm, I, I really need to ask this question though. Um, and it's sort of, goes back to when I asked earlier. Um, but now the, the question is, um, so we're asking, uh, you know, was there in the cases that we, that you mentioned before with, you know, the shootings of, of, you know, unarmed black kids and, and things like that, um, uh, you know, and the self-defense, you know, the, 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 that whole idea, was it reasonable for them to be fearful or whatever? Um, and you're asking, the, you know, the really important question, you know, well, was the belief reasonable to begin with, right? Um, um, but, see, I guess the question that that raises for me is just, again, sort of, does it, if we can assess the reasonableness of the belief and come to an answer, yes or no, um, whether or not it has any effect, you know, in terms of, the perception, the experience or not. And so that just, I just wonder to what extent is the worry really just, you know, when are fears or beliefs or, you know, anything of that nature, uh, you know, reasonable? Um, and when aren't they? And, and, you know, sure, sure, you can, as you, as you, as you kind of nicely put it, um, expand the house of reason to include perception. But in a way, my, my sense, and, you know, tell me where I'm wrong in this, is that what really matters is just, you know, whether what one believes is reasonable or not, and how that information in one's informational economy gets, gets process specifically isn't really the issue it in other words if 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 it affects our experience or not the problem is the person is the belief itself is not reasonable so you you had said before when talking about some of these cases you know we can't know to the extent to which the fears or the beliefs or anything are you know in the experience or not and and the question was, you know, is is the fear reasonable or is the belief reasonable? And and I think those are excellent. Those are the perfect questions. But the 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 you know the sort of the implication is it doesn't really matter if it's in the experience or not. What matters is is the belief reasonable or not, and and that's it. 
Yeah. Well, the strongest defense of um, the, the strongest defense of the people who, who have used this deadly force has been precisely that that's how the situation struck them. And it was reasonable to strike it them that way. Um, if you said, well, you know, the situation didn't really strike them that way at all, but they jumped to the conclusion that it was, then you're right. Um, that, that belief would be unreasonable, but nobody would ever say that. I mean, no, that, that wouldn't be, um, that, that wouldn't be a natural defense, uh, for them to give because th- these are judgments that are made, um, or supposed to be made in response to getting to the scene. You know, why not just, you know, if, if, if you didn't have to, if they didn't have to go to the scene, why, why put themselves in the firing line? Why not just send a drone, you know, to attack the gunman if they were so sure that that's what it was. So, you know, the fact that they, I, I mean, of course it's an extreme example and, you know, no, nobody would do that, but, um, but given how little, uh, information that's coming directly from the scene, given what little role seems to be played by that perception in a way, you think, well, what, um, perception isn't having, that's what I mean when I say that's one, one example of perception not having the weight that it, that it really should have. Um, so I think that the strongest defense of, um, the strongest defense of those forms of violence has been precisely that, well, that's, that's how it struck them. Not that, um, well, you know, they had some sort of ambiguous experience and then they, you know, reasonably concluded. Um, and, you know, if we think, well, their experience was just some kind of colors and shapes, but um, on the strength of their, on the strength of their prior outlooks, they, um, they, uh, they reached the belief that they were in some sort of dangerous situation. Um, um, at, at that point, one would have to take issue with, one would have to take issue with, um, you know, with, with the prior outlooks, but, the, the whole point of investigating a scene is to take in is to take in new information from it. So, um, you know, the, the practice of it suggests that you actually get information about whether the person is or isn't dangerous, not that you're just relying on, you know, purely on your background beliefs to, to draw conclusions about that. Right. Um, right. Okay. Um, well, we're, 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 we're out of time actually, but um, so let me just, uh, I'd like to end with a, Standard question is what's what's on the horizon for you? What are you are you following up this book? Or are you working on something different? Um, what's your what's in your near future? Yeah, I have a couple of thanks. Yeah, I have a couple of um, different projects. There are some uh, leftover issues from the book. I recently um, finished a paper about inference, which says a little bit more about what I take that to be. Um, I'm working on a paper about whether we could apply um, the idea of credences where those are a kind of graded belief to the realm of experience and a bit dubious about that. And then another strand of the book that we didn't quite get a chance to talk about is the idea that there might be norms governing attention. And uh, that's another project I have, have underway. Okay, great. Well, I look forward to, um, to reading about those as well. Um, But uh, for now we are, we are out of time. So I just want to say thank you for joining us for new books in philosophy. Thank you, Carrie. You've been listening to my interview with Susanna Siegel. We've been talking about her new book, The Rationality of Perception, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.